Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one eventful page of Talmud every day. And today, on Nadarim 28, we come across one of those amazingly suggestive, provocative snippets. Have a listen. The Gemara answers. This is a case where he says, Today, in his heart but verbalizes the vow in an unspecified manner. And although we hold that unspoken matters that remain in the heart are not significant matters and are not taken into consideration, with regard to circumstances beyond one's control, it is different, and he is permitted to rely on the mental stipulation that he added in order to limit the duration of the prohibition affected by the vow. In other words... If someone is forced through circumstances beyond their control to take some kind of vow that they don't want to take, but then kind of say something very, very quietly in their heart, that has a lot of meaning, which brought to mind a passage that today's guest told me about and I couldn't stop thinking about ever since. So welcome back to the show, great Shakespeare scholar and Yeshiva University professor Shana Trapito. Hello. Hi, Liel. Thanks for having me on. So this passage about being forced to verbally confess something or agree to something that doesn't really resonate or sit well with your value system really struck me a couple of months ago when I was at a production of The Merchant of Venice with John Douglas Thompson. He's an incredible Black actor, and he was starring in the role of Shylock. And I'm settling to my seat, and I'm flipping through the playbill, and this slip of paper slips out, and I thought it was going to disappoint me, telling me that Thompson's not available tonight. But instead, I was surprised nonetheless by the following quote. It's a this production of The Merchant of Venice adds a portion of the text from the Kol Nidre prayer ah. at the end of Shakespeare's Act 5. And this Kol Nidre prayer is spoken by Shylock on one side of the stage, who is in Venice, and by his daughter, Jessica, at that point in the play, who has run off and married a Christian, disavowed her father, disavowed her Judaism, and has left. So first of all, you're thinking, guys, this is my night off. What are you doing? <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you what I was thinking. This whole blurb is written by the the production's liturgical consultants, which, by the way, might be a fantastic side gig for you. But it goes on to explain that Kol Nidre is recited on the eve of Yom Kippur, and it gives context for, you know, the rabble that's there to see this production. And then it talks about how there's this haunting melody, and it's written in Aramaic, and it just centers on vows that were made honestly and sincerely, promises hidden deep in our hearts and oaths that are forced upon us. So the origins of Kol Nidre are actually kind of mysterious and a bit controversial. They go back to the Gaonim, but I don't want to get into that, but I will tell you that by Shakespeare's time, Kol Nidre was talked about, and it has this kind of uh, difficult, seedy reception. It was printed in the prayer books as early as 1565, so a couple of decades before Shakespeare was writing, but he was alive at that time, in the liturgical uh, canon or the prayer book of Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. And it's believed that that formalization was the result of what had happened during the Inquisition, when massive components of the Jewish community were forced to convert. And as Jerry Reich, who's the liturgical consultant, adds in this, I guess, what was now a heart-wrenching sermon that was disguised as a playbill insert, he adds that, unfortunately, the prayer that may have brought comfort to so many Jews forced to convert was also the prayer that was 
was most often cited by Christians to support their assertions that the oaths of Jews could not be trusted. And this is written about Christian Hebraists are translating this. But what is curious to me is what is behind the directorial decision in the 21st century to have Cole Nidre added at the end of Shakespeare's 400 plus old play. And it wasn't just this play. There's actually a tradition in the production history going back to as early as 1909, where we have productions adding Cole Nidre, either Shylock's kind of muttering it off stage or it's front and center. So as an artistic choice, one thing, uh, you know, whenever you adapt Shakespeare, you got to say, does the play text support this? And yes, this play is all about vows. Shylock over and over is saying, I have sworn an oath. I will have my bond, an oath, an oath. I've made an oath in heaven by my soul. I swear there's no power in the tongue of a man that can alter me, which is interesting in and of itself. But it goes beyond that. We also have these lovers that swear fidelity and loyalty and allegiance to each other. They make promises that by the end of the play, they break and the romantic plots kind of fall apart. And then most interesting and then perhaps most overlooked is the oath that was made before the play even starts. That Portia, who's this young woman, rich heiress in Belmont, her father is dying. And before he dies, he makes an oath that binds her, that she has to remain unmarried until a man is able to pass this great casket test. And she laments that in doing so, the will of a living daughter is curbed by the will of a dead father. This play is all about how vows that we make to ourselves can kind of expand out and impact others, not just within our families, but intergenerationally into the community. So what do directors achieve when they include Cole Nidre at the end of the production? So I think, of course, there's this initial jolt to the audience when you just hear the different language. Most people probably think it's Hebrew, but it's really Aramaic. It's this kind of haunting melody. And it takes us just for a moment out of our world and deeper into the complex world of Shylock, into the world of this Jew. We might not understand the words, but the melody of remorse and regret and the sounds of sorrow and even of shame that's understood by everyone in the theater at that moment. And in that sense, Kol Nidre is one of one way for the actors and the director to highlight Shylock's humanity and to underscore that there's this universalism through the particulars of his religious observances. But that feeling of pain when we have to concede to do something that goes against our value system and to utter it publicly in front of others. And that, of course, is referring to Shylock's forced conversion. Because what is he reciting Kol Nidre for? So at the end of the play, Shylock is forced to convert. Now, Shakespeare leaves it off stage. He does not perform that. And it could be that, you know, this implied forced conversion is something he didn't put on the stage because at the time it was a very hot button issue. You don't stage conversions live and in person because for Shakespeare's Elizabethan audience, staging a conversion would have been a really inflammatory thing to do, not because there were Jews in the audience, <laughs> that wasn't a concern for him, but rather because his Elizabethan audience, it wasn't a crime to be Catholic, but the ritualistic means by which you performed that faith, that was illegal. So you had kind of populations portions that Elizabeth said, it's not my job to make windows into the souls of men. I don't know what you want to do, but I'm going to make you make an oath where you swear your allegiance to the crown and to the Anglican church. But that puts so many individuals in this compromising position of what they say to themselves in the privacy of their own homes. 
And so there are a lot of productions that kind of stage the conversion, but it could be that Shylock's Kol Nidre is also intended to release him from the oath of Esau in heaven, that he would enact revenge. And it's also possible that he's reciting, and I, I like this reading of it, that he's reciting Kol Nidre because he feels remorse and shame for the declaration that he made that he'd rather his daughter be dead at his feet than married to a Christian. And I think there's a part of him that maybe is revisiting and recanting that. And then, of course, there's Jessica. Jessica, who's said that she's not a daughter of her father's manners, perhaps his blood, but she kind of disavows her Judaism and runs off with Lorenzo, her Christian lover. And it just, it doesn't end well for them. The Merchant is one of those plays that it's kind of technically a comedy, but no one walks out laughing. We, we don't think, you know, there's a happily ever after in store. So I think all in all, this is by no means a play with all's well that ends well. But I do think that The Merchant of Venice continues to demand the attention of audiences today because Shakespeare is exploring the potentially devastating and all-pervasive consequences of insisting on vows that we form from ungoverned passions and then dismissing the sacred bonds that really sustain passion and loving partnership. So in Kol Nidre and, and really throughout the entire tractate of Nidarim, we see rabbis and their wives, right? Much like Shakespeare's Portia, they might be unschooled, but they're insightful and they get in there too. And they're exploring the thresholds and the edges of oath keeping and the wisdom and care that each of us needs when we apply and make commitments to ourselves and others. Dr. Shana Trapito, and to all those who said, hey, tractate Nidarim has nothing to do with the world we live in and with timeless art. You proved everyone wrong, and you gave us an unbelievable play in its own right. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope you do, please go and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Dafyomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Rusquet and Quinn Waller. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Mark Oppenheimer, Sarah Fredman-Ader, Robert Scaramuccia, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You can find us on Twitter at takeone.fiomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic and we will see you again soon. Soon.